this is Kiai, the label lead of Feelers, an artist-run art and tech label based in Singapore. Welcome to Generative Dreaming, a series of conversations I facilitate around art making. In each episode, two artists of different disciplines chat about what, why, and how they make what they make, as well as their visions for the future and the wider world. Their conversations show us how we persist through courage, community, and creative strategy, not just as artists, but also as people. In this episode, artists Chantal Fu and Chok Sushen talk about what it means to glitch and disrupt through their bodies, screens, and machines, and how doing so leads them into the now and into the future. Just a small note that Sushen recorded this episode with a mask on, which is why she sounds a little bit muffled. Hi, my name is Sushen and I am an installation-based artist here in Singapore. And um, my practice often deals with investigating material relationships and systems through the cybernetic system and thinking about how the cybernetic system then creates or establishes a dynamic between ourselves, our bodies, other organisms and machines. And my installations usually often incorporate electronics and found appliances and objects. Hi, I am Chantel. I am a movement performer artist and I am currently living in London. I'm quite interested in what I have termed for myself a glitch space and it goes along the lines of imagining the space in between our screens, what it means to embody a glitch or be an error within a choreopolist landscape. But I think ultimately my work sort of is a sense of unraveling, unraveling my body's history, unraveling the codes that we've been sort of programmed in life. I work mostly in performance, but I also love working with materials. The first question is, how are you and what have you been up to in this time? I feel like the last few months have felt very... I feel both really distanced from physical space time and also very dragged along by it. Like My body is really tired. I've been working on some projects which have been very exciting, this included. I think I'm in a space of allowing myself to soak into my practice again, which I haven't really I haven't really got to do the last past year. So I'm working on some live performance upcoming. But also on my studio, I have a small movement studio called Studio Lotus Fruit that I've just recently begun. It's a, a branch of my practice that extends more towards community care and mutual somatic openings uh, with, with, that I can share with people outside of myself. And then on a more life level, I think just riding <laughs> with life, riding with what it means to survive these times, what it means to find joy within a landscape that feels really quite desolate. Um, yeah. Yeah, what about you, Sushit? <laughs> I have similar feelings too. I I just came out of a really busy six-month period of being in a residency at the Singapore Art Museum, which was really enriching for myself, but also tiring. And then at the last month of my residency, I was also involved in a couple of projects, which kind of also made me think about like my role as a creative or a cultural worker because yeah I mean I'm always interested in working on projects in different roles and so this time around um, I was invited to sort of write a curatorial text for my friend's show 
Their names are uh, Sean Gui and Kim Leon, and they exhibited at Starch. So that was really like cool and exciting to be a part of. And I'm also, I guess, a bit more involved in some other artist projects also where I'm not the creative lead. And I think that that's also quite interesting to learn from others. And life-wise, I guess I'm trying to think about who I am or how I would describe myself like outside of my practice because like in the past two years or so of my professional practice, I've just been seeing my individual self and my artist self as like one individual person or, or the same person. But I also feel like I think there's more to my life outside of whatever I produce and I shouldn't feel like I should be defined by that. Yeah. So just slowly like thinking about those kinds of questions. And recently recovering from COVID. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Most recently recovering from COVID. <laughs> yes. Sounds like both of you are fairly exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about exhaustion because I think I similarly feel very motivated by exhaustion, which might be a bit... I've been thinking about it because I don't think it's very healthy. But in the past year, for example, where I took a really long and slow feeling creative break where I just like couldn't think about my work or didn't want to or didn't even have the motivation, whether it was mental health or for whatever reasons, to dream about my work or just imagine making new things. Then I feel like because I'm such an extreme person, I'm either zero to hundred. And then now I'm just like, what's next? What's next? What's next? So that's a kind of like gritty exhaustion. Maybe I've been feeling that has been very lively for me as well. And I wonder if there's a way to balance that. And when Sishan, I think if I heard correctly, you were saying something about a singular self or your artist self being singular or like you trying are you trying to seem it into like a single selfhood or are you allowing space to f- flow with like different identities i think it's more of the latter like previously I, I i thought of it as more singular but then i think i'm trying to sort of not really separate the two but sort of see that i don't have to be constantly producing work or be defined by the I guess the success of a particular project or a particular work yeah I wanted to also allow like for myself to find other hobbies that are not so labor intensive (laughs) because art does have some sort of creative hobby-esque energy yeah could you guys tell us a little bit about the kinds of tech that you use in your work so how does, you know, your body interface or interact with technology and what, what kinds of technology do you actually interface with like the most, you know, in your work? Usually I work with microcontrollers such as Arduinos and the ecosystem that the microcontroller resides in. So a microcontroller is kind of like, a, I would say it's like a small, like, computer of sorts where you're able to attach outputs and inputs and write a simple program or a complicated program of what you'd like things to do and what kinds of things can happen when a certain input is being received and so on and so forth. And so usually my installations are based around that. But I also do do some 3D printing and modeling as a sort of prototyping um, tool. But I'm also recently been thinking about the 3D printer as its own sort of collaborator or what kinds of features or in what ways it thinks that it's different from mine and what I can learn from it. So seeing the printer as its own like sort of entity or its own kind of body Mm, like oh how it can consume or read 
a 3D file and how it produces. For example, the 3D printer that I use is something called a fuse deposition model printer. And basically, if you think of like a icing bag, it just like squeezes out the plastic in that same way to grow like an object. Yeah. And so I realized the machine sees the object not really in as a form, but rather as a series of movements and positions to be in. So like the the thing that extrudes the plastic has to move in a certain way for it to complete the object, <laughs> mm. which I think was something that I was have been thinking about recently. <laughs> what about you, Chantel? In the last two, three, maybe three, three years, I've been exploring a lot with live streamed performances. Initially, coming from a place of reaching through time zones and distances, like kind of how we're doing now, because I live away from Singapore where my family is. And that practice grew into like temporality and using live streaming services or Zoom meetings or Skype, or there's something called OBS, which is a live streaming software that I have started to use to sort of layer different planes of time that has sort of come in hand in hand with my academic research. I don't know if you call it research, you know, like at a point in time, it's been kind of in its own vault somewhere in my brain. But like I said, thinking about the space in between our screens, glitch time, a glitch body, what it means to kind of like pulse my presence through this unknown, like the unknown of networking or the unknown of nowness, which is to me like a falsehood. And yeah, kind of contrasting that in my last work that's called, it's a long name, Everything That I Am Arriving, Come Always. And it kind of is like a, a cluster bomb of vestiges of my past and presences. I'm behind like a felt screen moving and in lifetime, like physically, but I'm dancing with three different cameras that is passed through Zoom and onto OBS, onto a film elsewhere in the room. So I think it's like a fracturing of nowness and arriving. The screen and the camera is sort of within my work and within, I guess, my daily life, very present and kind of attached technology that that I experience or that I have others experience me. Yeah, and when Sushen, you were telling us more about your work and the microcontrollers, I haven't got the chance to see your works in person, but I think maybe kind of how our work sits within like a similar place. I, I, I wrote this like choreographic circuits. Mm which I which I, I find really interesting. Obviously, we do them in very different ways. But yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Choreographic circuits or machine bodies that I think come from very different places. Maybe you find a body through a machine and I find machines through my body. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Chantel, do you mind talking a little bit about what you mean by glitch and maybe what does it mean to glitch? Also, because Sushen, when, when we had earlier conversations, you're talking about disruption or failure in terms of tech as well. So I'm, I'm curious to know how each of you may define a glitch differently and maybe how the glitch appears in your work and what does that mean for you? I think initially... The glitch, kind of the word glitch came within my practice was because I was reading articles by Legacy Russell, which is now a book called Glitch Feminism. And it speaks about embracing the error and sort of avatars and how you merge the online and offline divide. So that was kind of what began my interest. But I think I'm more 
interested in embodying a glitch and I am with movement I was playing with what that meant and then I guess on a larger scale thinking about codes the word choreo policy is from Andre Lepecki which is like there is a way in which we've been choreographed to move through society or like the time space or even the way we have to like go on the left or right on the escalators or who says we can't cross the road when the the man is red for example so i think those are for me what i started to think about how did i glitch against these strictures or like codes that we've been sort of made to obey and that definitely expands for me as a context of all my work as a queer modality in my life and my work but then also glitch it being like more traditionally known as a more aesthetic like there's glitch art when computers first came about i think it's very for me like temporal like it plays with time it plays with like how time is supposed to be linear or singular and it is a disruption or it's a rupture of how we expect to move through time um so within live stream for example i think it's embracing the latency the actual glitches of like choppiness that i might never like what you're listening to now or like what i'm doing now i might have done it maybe a split second ago for me like that glitch feels like it gives me space to imagine what the world isn't yeah for me i think kaya asked me about why i chose to use the word disruption i i think i had a few reasons why i chose the word disruption and the first thought came to mind was when i was working with the material and how the material has its own sort of uh desires that it communicates to me that sort of disrupts my own expectations and subjectivities of what i want to project onto the material and especially when working with something kinetic i think the disruption is very much more apparent when something starts to freak out or something starts to really like I don't know, jolt uncontrollably and you're just like, oh no, this was not supposed to happen. But then I take a step back and I say, um, perhaps it could happen, you know, like why? And I guess in some ways it does have that parallel to the glitch. And I think the second reason why I chose the word disruption was also because of something that I intentionally did. So I think I forgot to add answering the question on what kinds of technology i use actually the last part is the found objects and appliances and so recently within my time at residency i had been excavating or dismantling a series of massages and i felt that that was one very intentional act of disruption of what the original function of the appliance or the machine was supposed to do but then at the same time i wasn't really sure what i was going to find or if anything would sort of resonate in the way that i was interested in working with so i think there's an element of i guess surprise but also frustration and endearment uh, like sort of a concoction of the three <laughs> Going back to what Chantel you said about choreographic circuits, choreographic circuits, I feel like in a way then you're kind of inviting the machine's choreography into whatever you're doing. You're inviting its body to interfere with what you're expecting, right? Also, because when when Chantel you're talking about the choreo policy and you're describing how people, you know, you kind of learn that you have to walk a certain way or you have to navigate. The city a certain way. It just made me think of the the 3D printer that you were describing and how you know to produce that shape or to reproduce the shape of the city that that we think we need to keep to. Then you kind of learn to move in that way and extrude yourself in that way, right, into the same shape again. Very sad image. <laughs> yeah, in like programming, there's a very like fundamental phrase called "if this, then that," or "if not this, then what." It's already like a very instructional format where it 
says, oh, if this happens, then you should be like this. So it's like, if you're not climbing up the escalator, keep to the left. And if you are, then, you know, keep to the right. <laughs> so I, I do see, I do see that sort of parallel coming up of like programs as instructions, but instructions for what and for who. And I guess whenever I think about instructions, or at least this word came up when you were speaking, which is because you are the programmer, I suppose, and but then there are certain limits that the machine tells you, like this or that, like it's quite black and white. And how do you negotiate with the program? <laughs> which I feel like is my work. <laughs> I was just like, how do I... Okay, I listen to you, but you also listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's a good question. It's one that I don't really know I have an answer to. <laughs> but I think a lot of my intervention is not entirely code-based. I try to keep the program actually rather simple because it's actually prone to a lot of failures when it starts to overload with different kinds of instructions and um, usually my intervention for the program is simple but then my intervention will be physical like I would try to for example maybe restrict the machine's movement in a very rudimentary way for example like adding a wall or an additional weight or a piece of fabric that can you know limit how the machine can operate so in some ways really uh, negotiating with the more sculptural aspect of it, which I feel like is also something I'm slightly more comfortable with anyways. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, also because you use the word intervention, then it sounds like you're the one disrupting the machine's desires or so. Because the machine is like, I just want to massage legs and arms. And then you're like, nah, I'm just going to open you up and uh, take this part, hang it out and put cloth around yeah. and then rewire you to do this. So it's quite interesting also that, that you you are the one glitching the machine in that sense as well. I feel like, yeah, you just made me sound like I'm like, uh, I don't know, mad like scientist. <laughs> yeah, just like, duh, like, you know, you must do what I say. <laughs> yeah, but I think like, I, I hope for it not to appear that way. Um, I, I do think that I had to uh, conform to the machine a lot more in the start, especially when I was taking things apart. Like I had to be sure that I didn't like cut a very crucial wire or I didn't like, you know, dislodge or hit a core part of the model. So I would like to have a more like uh, a more equal or a more balanced relationship with the appliances that I work with. I, I, I guess... When you see at surface level, it does seem violent that you're pulling something apart and making something do something. But I don't really see it as a sort of violence. I see it as like the, the machine has been pre-scripted by factory settings and you are simply giving it a divergent path. And a thought that came to mind, which I think resonates as well, when you say to, you're kind of like looking at the machine's insides and making sure not to cut crucial wires, that it comes with knowing the script in a way to also disrupt or offer a path beyond something that was already predetermined. So you are not doing the machine harm, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe what you're describing then, this like negotiation from not cutting the wires, but then eventually also deciding on a shape for the final work, maybe answers what Chantel was wondering about. Like, how do you negotiate between the machine and, and yourself? And what is the conversation? Maybe that is the conversation that's happening, um, where you meet the body and then you see what it needs and then you decide what is possible from there. On the word violence, I'm also thinking of this book I read recently, which I'm still trying to process what it said, but um, it, it was A Director Prepares by Anne Bogart. And one section on which is on violence, she says that 
there is violence involved in art making because when you make a decision to close one door, basically when you make a decision and you close the other doors, there is a kind of violence involved. And there is a kind of courage needed for you to enact that kind of violence to make your work, which I, I don't know if I'm... I don't know how to <laughs> kind of make peace with that, but maybe it's because the word violence feels very spiky and maybe it can be more neutral. Is it like a refusal? Like, I don't know. I think she was trying to say that you need courage to make a decision. Mm. Like at any moment to say that it is this and it is not that. Mm. You know, and um, that in itself is a form of violence that is needed for creation to happen. Which I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel, but it just made me think of, of that. I like what Chantal said about like in the context of me like dismantling the machine and how like you need to sort of understand the machine to a certain degree in order to sort of change it or redirect it into a, a, a different kind of aesthetic or function. And I think that that is also kind of what glitching is also at large right is that there is a certain set of system at play that we understand but we're also trying to do things differently and see whether how, how we can sort of capture the pockets of space that appear to be unaccounted for or permutations that are less, um, you know, are overlooked in a system and sort of seeing how we can use them to surprise us in delightful or horrific ways. <laughs> I'm curious for Chantel because we're getting a sense of for Sushen, like where the limits of glitching may be. Like past if you glitch past a certain point and you cut that wire, then it's not going to work anymore, even for what you want. I'm I'm curious for Chantel if you have come up against limits in terms of the kind of glitching that you do and like at at what point does it become too much or it just, you know, things fall apart for even what you are trying to do? I think maybe because my work, or at least this work that I'm thinking about where there were many different layers of glitches, I think. First is my body, which I feel like it's it's like a forever sort of challenge where I, I, I often experience this feeling of like, I can't dance or move what I mean. <laughs> it, it happens all the time. It seems like maybe at this point, my movement work is more about trust than trying to make my body do something. I often feel like there's genuinely a physical limit for what my body can do as a human being, but also as uh, someone who dances. Yeah, how to use movement to even just glitch or just say what I'm trying to say. I feel like it's, I feel like I often just go and kind of blind at this point and just let my they just trust that's gonna happen and and then there is the limits of the entire circuit like the entire thing that I'm trying to do which is kind of strange when you're trying to glitch and then something wrong happens and you're like oh no it's not supposed to do that like the very last performance of that work I had it was in a gallery space called slug in Leipzig Germany and everything was fine, had set it all up, but didn't test. Because I have, I, I move with two phones and one MacBook, which is linked to two other MacBooks, one of which someone is on OBS switching the screens, like kind of VJing what appears, and another being connected to the projector that is, it's going to superimpose the live stream onto a film that I have already made. And yeah, I guess it's just actual technical issues where it just wouldn't show up, for example. That's one thing. But I think like the limits of, of this metaphysical or more conceptual sort of glitch, 
I don't know if I really experience it beyond what's literally happening. Like whether it's my body or whether it's a technical fault. Maybe because the kind of glitch space I work with is it's it's more of like a does it exist? It's already a question and therefore it's not quite been defined. When it's a space that I cannot define but I also experience and believe in, maybe it's quite magical in the sense that it can keep expanding and mutating and I feel like it kind of glitches on itself. Like some days it exists, some days it feels a lot more possible than others. Yeah, so I think in a way the kind of glitch I work with is quite forgiving. Like it's very imaginative. It's both really real and really placeless. I think I get frustrated that so much of it is, you know, this alternative reality that I can only seed in people's minds and thoughts. But because I I really care about embodiment, how do I really, how do we all enter that space? I think that's my limit at this point, which is why I've kind of sort of also stepped back from making work because I felt like I was just digging a deeper hole out into nothingness. Yeah, how do we activate these spaces in real life, I think, is maybe what I want to tend towards because I want to be able to experience with everyone else this world that I think a lot of us desire. Like, it's not just my work, you know? So maybe that's the limit, that it's not very real. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that what you're trying to do is very commendable and also very challenging. I think that it's also something that art has to lend itself to the viewer. It's almost like the, the world that it invites the viewer to be a part of is also like a two-way street. There's not necessarily something that can be enacted solely by the artists themselves onto others but the desire to create a space or a realm that can accommodate for I'm not a place or a space outside of the anxiety uh, driven world that we reside in I think it's already like it's already very powerful yeah actually I was gonna say a similar thing which is that I think what you're both doing I really admire a lot because I think it's difficult in these times, I mean, all times, but these times, to invite the unknown into your work. Because I feel like there are so many tools now that are around controlling conditions and, you know, making things smooth and making them work. So to actually invite the possibility of things breaking down or, you know, a machine that you have to open up and make your decisions around, or even the possibility that, you know, your live stream might have a lot of latency or things don't line up, or, you know, your body can't do the thing that you're asking it to do. I think that takes a lot of courage because it's always easier and there are always easier paths to take in terms of like, I know how to do this. Let's just do the thing I know. And I can be really good at it and I can show people I'm really good at it. And then that's that's it. So I think it it's... Yeah, I really admire that. And um, what Sushen, you were saying about that two-way street and the Chantel, you are saying like when the person on the other side doesn't understand, cannot really see what you're seeing. Maybe I'm, I'm stretching it a bit, but maybe that gap is the glitch space that we really need to engage with. Because I think the limits of my imagination and the limits of your imagination, the space in between that is the most possible like the most incredible amount of possible things that we haven't seen yet. And maybe that is another way of thinking about the glitch and thinking about that gap. I guess I'm trying to be more optimistic about the ways we cannot reach each other and whether that gap can lead us towards survival and thriving and joy. I'm grateful that you fleshed it out this way because I think it's important to be optimistic about our work which is something I'm learning, you know, to like celebrate and also not see as like futile. <laughs> and it's true. I do, I think I've mentioned it to you both before, or like I just write it a lot. I write a lot as I work or like right before I perform. I've given up on rehearsing. <laughs> I, I think for me, writing kind of like 
frames my mind into that space. And I realize that space, as Kiai says, when I write, it's like I'm always pulsing my presence. And I guess this presence can also be my intentions um, within the work towards the, the people who come and watch or you know, take part or witness my performances. And I think this pulsing, it's an extension. It's always a reaching towards. Maybe that is ultimately what matters the most in my work. And I guess to see it as to to bridge the gap between my intentions and knowledge, because I'm the only one who really knows what the work is trying to do, I think, is to just hope that there's a bit of like just a little ripple like, I don't expect I don't think it's possible either for an audience to receive the work as fully and, and as wholly as I have made it to be yeah so maybe that is that is the essence If you were each to kind of say what your work is hoping towards, how would you articulate that? Like, if I, if I, I just, it's just a new person, a stranger, and they ask you, so, so, yeah, what is it? Like, what do you, what are you trying to get to? Can you mean like, uh, how would I describe my work? Or like, how would I introduce my practice? Or, Maybe, maybe what I mean is like, what is the world you're reaching towards with the work, or what is the possibility you're hoping for by making this? I know it's a big question. Just, just curious. Like, how would you? Because I think usually when you make something, you believe that something is possible. I'm just curious to know what that thing is. If you can put words, if you can't, it's it's all right. You know. I do think about this quite a lot because after I finish like a piece or a performance, I always end up thinking, Siala, I'm just doing the same work <laughs> over and over again. And so maybe for me, I, I see a pattern. And I think for me, it's to offer a feeling of either desiring or yearning, either yearning away or like towards. I think that's the, the base feeling of like yearning. <laughs> I think I'm, a, I'm still quite a romantic, cheesy person. And so there's like this, I hope, I don't know if it comes across, but I feel like there's always, when I make a work, there's this pulling tension when I move as well. And I feel like that's a very potent emotion or state of mind to desire because that that it's a very... It mirrors what you need within your life or self. And I think even though, like, say my work, the contexts of my work can shift, but if I manage to offer this feeling of desiring, yearning, or imagination of... Because that's also the way I receive work. Like, the works that move me the most are when it evokes within me a new sort of desiring of like either what's possible or like, shit, I really miss doing this or like, why don't I do this? Like those are the works that move me the most of reminding me what is possible. I speak for myself, like I feel like I'm very guided by desire and dreaming and like, what do I want? Because otherwise for me, it's like, this is like my life force. Like my life force is to move towards where I, desire or like whether it means like seeking things or yeah desiring and the times where I feel the least uh, inspired by life is when I stop desiring when I feel like I have nothing more to desire Mm, so maybe that is it is a long sense of saying like that's what I want to offer people and then for me like when it begins with desire it can ripple into so many things so maybe that's my motivation. What do you desire? <laughs> what do I desire? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I am not too sure what kind of words 
to put into in terms of like what kind of worlds I want to create. But I did, I mean, I do sort of think about the idea of desire, but in a way that is, I guess, more, I think that with a lot of my works or where I um, arrive at ultimately is that we are actually much closer to what we want than we think that we actually are. And I, I do agree that like the world is driven by desire in some form or some shape. But I've, I think with my works, I feel like I'm trying to say that actually a lot of things that can fulfill us are actually within our immediate reach or are closer than we think. And so if we pay attention to like the things around us, the places that we are in, I think that there is like some sort of fate or like there's a reason why that we are placed in a certain way or we encounter certain things and that we are right here right now at this moment because things have aligned to bring us here so I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to tell myself when I make things because a lot of what I make is also a response to how I'm feeling or the strategies that I create are based on what I can access it sounds like then a lot of what you're doing is pointing to the present and saying, I mean, I, I really like that line, like we are a lot closer to what we want than we think we are. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe not pointing so much to the future or another world, but pointing to right now and saying, here it is. That sounds like what you mean? Mm, yeah, for sure. And I think that like people think that, oh, my works are very like, technological and very um, futuristic but I'm like no actually my work is situated here and now and it's what is possible now so we don't always have to look towards a place or time that has yet to exist for things to happen yeah and that makes sense with your found objects as well like the, mm -hmm. the choice to use what is already there mm -hmm. I actually also wanted to say Chantel because um, when you said for you, it's about desire and it's like romantic, cheesy, idealistic thing, right? I also wanted to say I think it's actually not because so many of our desires are so co-opted or fulfilled by things that are just trying to keep us gratified all the time that it's actually difficult to create desire or it is more difficult to create desire that cannot be fulfilled than we think it is because so much of what we're sold is like, oh, you can have it now. And then, you know, again, with the like not choosing the unknown, it is easier to fulfill, to only have desires that you can fulfill rather than have desires and to hold on to desires that you cannot fulfill. So I, I think there's something there that's quite powerful and actually quite strategic um, when it comes to creating desire in other people. That is, it is romantic, but I think romance is also maybe a strategy in itself. Yeah. Don't shit on romance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do, I do say it's like, oh, it's a bit cheesy, you know, feeling, feeling. But for me, it is, yeah, it, it makes sense that it's a strategy. It is almost, is it right to say pragmatic? Because for me, it's like the desiring is not to escape, is not to succumb to an imagined landscape and live there. It's very much uh, maybe a method in which I like both like make sense of my life and the things happening in the world and to, in a way, organize towards this. I don't even know if in my works are futuristic, but just move towards a space where we... And the we, I mean, is like the people who don't sit well with like the codes of society or desire to make decisions that just comfort <laughs> at the end of the day, like move towards a comfort that is accessible for everyone and not just a singular sort of person, which I think in every place will differ. I'm trying to come up with a sentence to wrap it all up, but maybe I can't. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to, yeah. For both of you, I mean, given that you've 
sat with the glitch or moved with the glitch or worked with, you know, interventions and disruptions for some time. Where do you think that is going next for you? Or like, what what's the next thing you're trying to explore? Rage. <laughs> Rage. Because I think I previously mentioned that I, I feel like I've been like in this little loop of swirling within the glitch, which is very fascinating to imagine and idealize. But then how does that bleed into our reality or like the physical space or make it accessible, IRL? And for me, I think it's not an answer, but a space I've been trying to explore is rage. Rage in a form of rupture, but also because my movement background is in traditional Chinese dance, there's a very strict sense of what beauty is. Also when it's gendered as like, you know, male-female Chinese dance, and as a femme person, to rage feels like the ultimate form of ugliness, or like it's seen as a very unwelcome emotion to hold in most places. Yeah, so thinking about different ways to rage that isn't just the stereotypical tantrum, violence, throwing things around, screaming. Because I feel like I'm quite a rageful person, which I think why my works or the things I'm interested in often have quite like insurgent energy, like just like (laughs) trying to like poke rage and also spite not really at other people but i think at the internalized opinions of other people that i have in my mind so i'm like mostly spiteful to myself but like who say i can't do certain things and i'll go do them (laughs) yeah i am actually thinking about textures right now and i'm actually really looking at food textures i'm not really sure if i want to look at food at itself but i'm thinking about certain strange textures that are found in food that i'd like to explore in a visual sonic movement kind of way in my installations so i've been thinking about the descriptor of q like you know when something is described as q how sorry how do you spell it's just like the letter Q. So it's a it's a Taiwanese like Oh the QQ. The Yeah, the QQ, yeah. So I'm th- trying to think about how to flesh it out <laughs> beyond the food itself. Yeah. Which I think could be quite fun <laughs> and and weird. <laughs> yeah. If you imagined it was 100 years from now, so that's 8 November 2122. What do you imagine bodies look and feel like in that time? Or how do they move? And how do machines look and feel like? How do they move? There's actually, like, very recently, a couple of days ago, I saw this artist's impression of what humans might look like. And it's terrifying. I don't know whether it's scientifically sound, but I'm not going to be, I'm not surprised if it is. We will basically be hunched over like this and have claw hands because we're holding our phones so much. We have shortened necks. Like, we basically just, yeah. I, can, I do see that happening though, like with people who like, you know, who work on the desk a lot. Their shoulders are already starting to like turn downwards. Yeah, they, they're really hunched. That, that's freaky. Maybe science has answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I have, I have a feeling that we would kind of go back to like a hundred years ago, <laughs> which is what, the 18, eh? 1900s i'm not very familiar with my world history but i feel like history has a tendency to repeat itself so i think like we might move forward in a way that moves backwards (laughs) i don't know you mean both in terms of like our bodies as well as machines yeah maybe our machines will become so complex that we no longer interact with them 
and that we sort of return back to our machineless lives but of course they I don't know control or operate in ways that we are still sort of we still need them sorry it's not very exciting to imagine <laughs> it's it's really difficult to imagine because I think a hundred years is still quite a near sort of future we might be alive <laughs> maybe because I think like life expectancy is really long now who knows but I can't help but think about climate change stuff. It's just so much. It's it's like the future I can imagine can be really realistic. Like I feel like class will just, there will just be two classes. People with, who are very rich and powerful have access to like tech. And then like the other class being like the return back to a hundred years ago or have no access to technology. I, I feel, I don't know why, I feel like that's going to be like a very extreme sense of as the way things are now, they will protect themselves and then whoever who cannot have to like, I don't know, collect rainwater that's probably acidic. Oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's very bleak. Um, it's okay to be bleak also. I guess to like make it really optimistic, it's like, will technology give more access? It's just terrifying. I mean, like Elon Musk just bought Twitter. This I don't know where tech is going. It, it it's scary. Like I feel like even in the last ten years, I feel like maybe we've been on social media more for the last ten years in our lives. In in such a short span of time, it everything has just been driven into like capitalist. Basically, it just become like capitalized as a platform. I feel like tech always begins as like this portal of what n- new possibilities are and then it gets eaten up by bad rich people who want to be richer and better. <laughs> yeah, the emancipatory quality of it quickly dies out <laughs> because it needs to sustain in a capitalistic society or system, which is quite unfortunate. <laughs> Oh, I have a fun imagination. Because I think, like, tech or social media, it's becoming a monopoly. Like, how, like, meta is, like, becoming everything. Everything that used to be different apps are under, like, one big company now. And TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, they're all becoming the same thing with, like, subscriptions. All the short reels or TikToks or, like, what, shorts on YouTube now. And ads, like, they're all becoming the same thing. And then the fun imagination is, like, someone, like, Sishuan, who knows how to work machines, will like rework all our day-to-day objects, like transformify them, and we'll have our own separate technologies from this massive monopoly. And then it will like all go there. Like power will flow to the people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, then then in school we'll just learn how to like hack old televisions and rewire certain things and yeah 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 transformer is the the future (laughs) (laughs) i I feel like yeah there will be ways for things to grow like people will not support the metaverse forever or like nfts are dying already (laughs) and i think that yeah what what is possible what is nurturing and what's beneficial for everyone will i believe will always come out strongest at the end yeah i I was gonna say also that i do feel like each time an extreme position like elon musk buying twitter and you know things in tech space kind of going to pieces in a way I feel like when extremes on one end happen, then the other side emerges as well as a counterbalance. That's like a way of how the world maybe kind of keeps things um, from tipping over. So I'm also curious to see, uh, I think it's called ludism, ludites, anti-tech people. I'm also curious to know what is going to come up there. And also, as you say, like the people who might make other transformer <laughs> futures or other internets like i think we can have many internets and i'm interested to see what kind of internets we're gonna make for each other i mean i don't think it will be a nice moment when it happens but i feel like 
the sense, especially with the great resignation and things like that, I feel like people are reaching a point where they just are willing to throw in the towel. And I think there is yet another limit that we can hit or another tipping point where people will or potentially might migrate away from this, like a mass exodus. I think if another internet emerges... so fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> I know it sounds scary, but like when you said that, I got chills. I was like, yes, this is where we have to be. I think we will. You know, it's just like, who's going to make that internet? Or can we make the sacrifices that need to be made to make that internet or those other internets emerge, right? Because I think people are ready to migrate. <laughs> you know, they just need enough anger and enough rage and they need the next space where they can actually get to otherwise they're just going to be stuck here with the rage in this internet right so i'm also thinking about that and sushen you must build (laughs) you are now tasked to build the prototype of the second internet or the the shitty robots i will construct the shitty robot and it will it'll run down elon musk or something (laughs) That's one kind of internet. <laughs> you build a robot to run down Elon Musk. Yeah, run on the router first. Then. I'm excited for the day where like hacking becomes a school subject. You know, like, why do we need math? No, hacking 101. <laughs> H2 hacking. I won't be surprised if there are schools that already teach that. I also think the internet is teaching lots of people to hack. So there's also that. Yeah, maybe you should hack stuff. At feelers. You can also hack IRL because I, I, I really like the idea of hacking and I really like what it represents. Like for me it's like a mini rebellion. I mean, I think there's some people who can really actually hack things and, and cause actual um felt consequences. But I, I, I'm not that kind of tech person. This is off point, but it's like a, an old work I did. It's it's part of a project I did for something I wrote, um, which I did actually send Kiai, which is I had tagged, you know, like when you tag is kind of like vandalism in Singapore, but in London, it, it's fine. It's fine to express yourself. And I was writing about like the meme, like mimetic magic of careless whisper. And I had printed out lots of stickers, which like was like careless whisper in like italics small like little labels and I stuck them around all the gentrifiers in Peckham which is a neighborhood I used to live in which is very like very gentrified now and for me that was like my my mini like hex like h-e-x but I guess it also kind of like hacks their minds with like earworms of like I feel like for me this is in my life now whether I make it as like an artwork or not, like that is quite an energy that I embrace, which is like little signs of like rebellion. Maybe we can think about how to hack spaces that we do not align with. Thank you both for sharing so much in the time. I think we are more or less done. Also because I, I want to share and go home and rest some more. But I wanted to check if you guys have any, you know, last things you want to say. Or if there are things you, you haven't mentioned that you want to mention, please feel free. I think I really want to say that I'm very, I really enjoyed our conversations, like the one that we've just had and also the ones we've had before. And very excited to see you both in person at some point. And I think, our conversations have sort of helped me think about my work with a bit more like distance whilst also learning about Sushin's work and seeing different ways we explore rather similar things, which for me, it's very, very fun. And I, I feel very tickled that I was like writing about like choreographic circuits and it's made like it's just given me a different way of like thinking about how I've done that in my work, which I'm grateful for. Likewise, it's been really nice to speak to you, Chantel, as well as Kiai for being a very helpful moderator. I think, I think you're more than a moderator though. Yeah, you've been helping like sort of gel our ideas together and sort of also breathe in new life. I think it's been great just learning and listening and talking about hacking the world at some point in time. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Thank you also, both of you, for, I think, sharing very honestly 
there's something very precious about letting people hear you think as you go, as you speak. And I think the two of you do that very generously as well. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Genitive Dreaming. You can find Sishuan at S-I-X-U-A-N-N-N and Chantel at C-H-A-N-F-Y-X on Instagram. Genitive Dreaming is a podcast by Feelers, which is housed within Potato Productions. The incredible music you hear, as always, is by Madam Data. We'll catch you in the next episode.